it's time again for one of my favorite topics on our podcast, cinematography. Uh, the visual language of storytelling. You know, all the stuff that I'm obsessed with, the stuff that's in my blood, the thing that excites me. It's the reason why I get started on films. It's the reason why I want to tell stories. It's the magic behind cinema. The combination of lighting and acting and blocking and camera positioning and what lens choices mean. It's the language of cinema. Ah, today's a good one. I'm excited. I'm pumped. I'm always excited. I'm always saying I'm excited. But today I'm just... Uh, I just finished, okay? I just finished today's episode. I just finished the interview and I feel so great afterwards. It's a good one. I got to sit down and talk with legend, legend of cinematography, Mr. Rob Draper. Rob has been in the business. He has been shooting for over 40 years. Um, he has so much experience. He talks about his origins in the business, uh, starting uh, shooting documentaries and news stuff. He's got such a great story of how he convinced uh, a news station to let him shoot. Um, and his progression um, from Australia to the US, uh, his progression into narrative, making that shift into narrative storytelling. Um, and then just his, his pure passion for the art behind the lens, his pure passion for capturing these moments that are all seemed motivated, all seemed inspired by his years capturing documentaries and his love of classical painting. Ah, it's a good episode. Welcome to today's episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. Welcome. This is my show. Come on in, take a seat, grab a beer, grab some headphones. You know, don't you wish you were here hanging out? I love it when I have people in the space and we're all in the same headphones together. Even us, while we're recording the show, we're, we're, we're wearing headphones just like you are at home. Or maybe you're actually listening to this in your car. How's it sound, by the way? I don't know if you guys noticed, but I spent some time. I think I talked about it on Instagram. I was uh, riding in the car and I just put on the podcast. And I, I'm not one of those dudes that listens to my own show, you know? And so I just threw it on the car and I was like, this sounds like shit. <laughs> Ah, the production. I thought I was doing such a good job. Well, to give you guys a little insight into how uh, we master podcasts, there isn't a rule set, right? There are so many variables involved. What microphones are you using? What are you putting it through? Uh, are you using com compressors? Are you using limiters? Like, what are you using to make your stuff sound great? If, are you using a roadcaster? Do you use any of the internal effects? Uh, believe it or not, I'm not putting any bass on my voice uh, as I record this. Um, and so uh, all these things were just a little confusing to you, or to me, rather. And so as I was processing this stuff in the past, I would try to do two things. One, I would listen to it on my nice speakers in my, in my edit room and process it there. But I would also listen to it on a set of, of decent headphones and see if that was right. It didn't occur to me that I should probably go listen to it in the car. <laughs> and like with visuals and with color correction, uh, it sounds different on every device. It sounds different in every environment. It's even worse with audio because the environment that you're in, how it's bouncing off the walls, who's walking around in the background, all that sort of stuff just changes the way it sounds, right? 
And so I hope you guys appreciate it because I went through the process. I, I learned uh, truly how to use the compressors the right way. I learned truly how to use um, the limiters and how to normalize my tracks and try to bring the volume levels up. So if you've noticed now that you have a bit more volume per episode, so you don't have to crank it as loud to get the audio the way you want it, which is nice. And I'm getting the voice levels up to where I want my music levels to be at. So what do you think? How does it sound? Let me know. Follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or follow the show on Instagram at a love with the process POD on Instagram. Um, and send me some notes. Tell me I'm good. <laughs> Tell me that I did a good job. It was such a panicked move on my part where I'm like, man, the show's doing really good. How come no one fucking told me that? It sounds like shit in the car. And so I just ran in. I had to teach myself. It was like one of those like quick, hard lesson. Like, okay, I, gotta, I, I, I just can't do one Google search or one YouTube search. I have to look at a bunch of different places. All right, give yourself about six, seven hours to learn how to do this, Mike. And I sat down, figured it out. And then once I figured it out, I'm like, okay, cool. I had to master as many of these episodes back out as possible. So I tried to go back and do at least the last six episodes so that there's a bit of continuity. Maybe over time, we'll go back and try to remaster some of the old ones. Um, but anyway, hope you guys notice the difference. It's pretty loud here at the house today. Unreal. Um, so yeah, excited. You guys are here for cinematography. You guys want to talk. Uh, Rob's going to give us all of his tricks and tips you're going to learn about what camera you should shoot on. You're going to learn about the, the lens that is going to make everything look perfect. Uh, he's going to tell you exactly how much you need to buy and how much you need to spend to be a professional cinematographer. And if you believe any of that stuff, then obviously you haven't listened to this show before. Because <laughs> no, we don't talk about any of that. We get in deep about a motivation. We get into deep stories about experience um, and uh, I was writing down a lot of stuff. And selfishly, I said to Rob afterwards, let's get beers. And so I'm going to continue this conversation in private. <laughs> so if you want to enjoy it now, strap yourselves in. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Grab a pen and paper. Or if you're taking notes on your phone, you know, in between searching on Instagram. Uh, get ready to write some shit down because you guys are going to love this. This is a love letter to cinematography. Perfect addition to our cinematography series here in A Love of the Process. So strap in, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love with the Process.
Bob, thanks for being on the show. How are you? You know, I am fantastic. I love to hear it, man. <laughs> <laughs> where are you? Where am I talking to you right now? Where are you at? Um, right at this very moment, I'm sitting in my small studio in Peachtree City, Georgia. Oh, cool. So you're down in Georgia, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I lived in uh, – I was in L.A. for about eight years. Actually, my wife and I lived in uh, Maine for nearly 25 years, and then we we uh, moved back out to L.A. in 2014. And um, uh, then I was shooting Creepshow over here and, and discovered that it was actually quite a nice place. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there are certain parts of it that we're not too fond of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the uh, actual environment is fantastic. I've had some crazy fun adventures in Georgia. I love Georgia, and it's a, yeah. such a great uh, industry town at this point with great crews and everything. So, well, it, it is. I mean, the crews here are fantastic at the moment, and um, I mean, the the strange thing is, during I was talking to someone the other day I, during the nineties, I used to take my crew all over the country and that's camera grip and electric but mm. um you know you can't do that anymore because there are such skilled people spread uh from you know mm -hmm. from all corners of the, uh, all corners of the united states so uh, it's not a problem finding skilled people anymore yeah no it's very true uh, and a lot of that has to do with the, i think georgia was big in the tax incentive right i think that's what pulled everybody down there at one point yeah i think that's that's what uh what got everyone here, and, and and I think that's still part of the, part of the appeal. Yeah, yeah, and and then it with obviously with like the Walking Dead being such a consistent show being shot there, and it really enables that crew to flex its muscles and and all the resources to start build up building up in that area. You know. Yeah, well, they they're. Um, I was talking to Greg Nicotero just a short while ago, and he's on the last episode of. Uh, season eleven <laughs> of The Walking Dead at the moment. <laughs> Actually, I, I got a I got an email from someone. Who, they're selling off all the houses they used as sets, and uh, wow. yeah, I, I don't want a Walking Dead house. <laughs> <laughs> Wild, yeah, that's super. Because that show's all coming to an end, which is crazy. It's been on for yeah. eleven seasons, man. Yeah, I know it's incredible. Yeah, man. Hey, who would have thought that a show about zombies would be that successful? I know. I bet George Romero would never have thought that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah completely. I, you know, he he was always independent all the way through. You know, I think he had a few occasions where he did some like larger studio pieces, but it always felt like he was fighting to get some cash to do what he needed to yeah, do. Yeah, and I mean, really, he was the guy who started the whole zombie thing in a in a way. And um, to see uh, The Walking Dead go on. The way it has is, pre is pretty astounding. I know. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Well, I mean, you're no stranger to horror. You've been in this business for, for what, <laughs> over 40 years, and you've been shooting horror for how long at this point? Well, I, I, I like to look at it that I've been a cinematographer for that long, <laughs> not that I've been shooting horror for that long, because my goal uh, originally was to not shoot any horror films. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, and and – if there was ever a fail, that was it. <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, just one after another. And, um, yeah, it was kind of bizarre. Well, I mean, it must be 
I, to give you a little bit of history on me, I've been a director for years, and and horror and and um, and thriller has kind of been my home and my landscape. And before that, I was a cinematographer for a while, and we we really get to play around a lot with uh, visual storytelling when it comes to horror and the genre of horror. Don't you agree? Well, yeah, that's true, and and there's no there's really no rules. I mean, when when I say I didn't want to do horror, I I didn't want to get. Um, uh, sort of sidetracked into into just shooting horror and be known as the horror guy, you know? Right. Um, right. And and when I say horror, I, I mean, I, I would love to have shot The Shining or, <laughs> or The Exorcist, um, as would a lot of other people. But, um, I, you know, it, you, everyone gets their break, really, in uh, doing horror. And, um, and I guess people liked what they saw, so it just – you know, rolled on from one to another. And, uh, um, you know, my, the first thing I ever shot was uh, – the first narrative that I uh, that I ever shot was an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, right. Right. And, um, yeah, they, they gave me uh, – they put me on for the first episode and said, look, we'll, uh, we'll check dailies out on the first episode, and if it looks good, you're on, and if it doesn't, you're off. <laughs> and uh, – <laughs> Yeah, which kept me awake for a few I'm nights sure. before we started shooting, I can yeah. tell you that. Um, <laughs> you I, don't, I don't think I slept for about 72 hours before we, <laughs> we rolled the first shot. And you were shooting film back then, so you were really sweating it, waiting for the <laughs> waiting oh, for it to be developed. We, right? we were shooting 16 mil, and and um, it was, and we had a lot of rules. that you know, there, I mean, there was a rule book about what you could and you couldn't do. And um, Oh, really? It actually turned out to be the best film school you could ever go to. <laughs> um, you know, it ta- taught you everything you need to know about shooting television, that's for sure. Wild. Oh, so they so, – because I never – I came well after all this, and I, I, I was at the beginning of sort of the digital age, and I made that decision to go digital instead of learning how to shoot film. So I don't know, man. So they they gave out like a very specific technical rule book that you had to follow. Like what, what kind of stuff was in the book? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the – the rules were um, you uh, – well, first off, there were two stages shooting and you would do uh, four days prep. Mm-hmm. Monday to Thursday would prep. Uh, Friday would be a pre-light. And then uh, Monday to Thursday the next week would be uh, the shoot. So you had four days shoot. Um, you were – uh, the the first two days of prep, you worked with the director and came up with a shot list, mm-hmm. and and you had to come up with a uh, a lighting diagram, and then on the Wednesday you sat down with the UPM and the first AD, and you had to talk through every single shot in the shot list, mm-hmm. and show them the lighting diagram and tell them how you're going to light, how you how it was all going to be lit. Um. And you were allowed a hundred setups, hundred <laughs> shots, and twenty optionals. And if you were doing really well, you could add in uh, um, five optionals each day. <laughs> and if you were doing really bad, you lost some shots. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that that was it. And then um, it was sixteen millimeter film. You had to shoot one hundred ASA. It all had to be hard light. You could not use any soft light at all. Wild. Um, it had to be exposed at T4. You could never use high-speed lenses or super speeds or anything like that. It was all T4. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and then off you'd go. 
So, and, so wait, so were these the rules specifically for that show? Is that what these rules were for, or were these rules in general? No, they were the rules for the show. Okay, and, all right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and, and you know, originally uh, I thought, you know, it's pretty wacky to have those sort of rules, but, I mean, they had – it was such a low-budget production that you – Yet there was really no room for error, and they figured up front that that was that was how they would uh, eliminate making mistakes, and it actually worked. And the thing that was good was you, you what it taught you was to be really one hundred percent prepped. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when when you went in to start those shows, I mean, I, I was so well prepped; it was absolutely unbelievable, and. Um. Uh, yeah, and and you could you could work out all your visual styles and all that sort of stuff uh, within the parameters of the show. But once once you started shooting, you had to stick to those rules. Mm-hmm. And I never forget one time I wanted I wanted to use some bounce. I had a bounce light up as Phil, and they said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa hang on, yeah, there's no." There's no soft lighting in this. I said, I'm just using a fulfill light. <laughs> you know, it's like, look, that's hard back lights, a hard key light. I'm just using it for fill. They go, oh, okay. We didn't want you sneaking stuff past us, you know. <laughs> I love the idea that there's lighting police there. Just sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you what was really funny is they had um, uh, this. We're in the old. Um, Pink Floyd rehearsal studios in huh. in Queens. No kidding. And and um, up above Studio A, uh, you know, you call it Studio A. I mean, it was it, it was sort of like a yeah, it was tiny. It was like a tiny little warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it actually was used as a, re- a rehearsal studio for Pink Floyd. But up above Studio A, there was a big window that opened into the production office and they would all sit up there <laughs> on their chairs watching us shooting down on the floor <laughs> and they had a microphone and they'd say, um, uh, by the looks of things, we're about 25 minutes behind schedule. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we may have to remove page 24 from the script. And and you go, oh, shit, okay, we better speed up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Man, God is merciless. <laughs> the voice of God coming from the ceiling. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was sort of like, and God spoke, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, well, you know, just a weird little tech question. Why were they making you shoot it like a T4? Is that just for focus? Focus issues so that you guys weren't uh, screwing up focus when you were shooting. Is that why? Or yeah, I well, it, it was back in nineteen eighty four, I think. Eighty yeah, yeah, I think it was eighty four or eighty five, something like that. Yeah, and um, uh, you know, the I mean, I think it all came from the networks more than it came from so the producers of the show and the and the networks said. And yeah, you know, this is what works best for us, and so that just became, you know, the Bible. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, it it helped with focus, obviously, because we always had a little bit more depth of field than mm-hmm. shooting on super speeds at one point three. So mm-hmm. it's so it, it's such an interesting. Oh, I can't wait to get into it with you because you've been doing TV stuff for years at this point, and then with the modern changes of the streaming networks and the tv stuff and how the quality sort of changed and there i'm sure there's there is rule books still in place but it seems a lot more loose than that was back then um but before we get into that stuff 
So you started initially, you were doing like, um, you were back in Australia, correct? That's where you're from is Australia, right? Correct. Yeah. Of course. And then, so then you were doing like TV news stuff and documentary stuff when you first started in this business, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I sort of got into it completely by accident and, um, my wife was uh, a top equestrian in Australia and, and uh, doing a lot of uh, three-day eventing, and she wanted me to film her uh, so she could look at you know, where she was making mistakes and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. And um, so I researched cameras, and I, and I was going to buy a Canon Scoopic 8mm camera. Hmm. And, um, and the day I went in to, to uh, buy it um, – there was a guy in there uh, from a TV, the local TV station. This is in a small country town in Australia. And and he asked me what I was doing and I told him, he said, look, I've got a, I've got a 16 millimeter camera that I'm selling for $350, which is half the price you're paying for this thing. And he said, if you go out to the TV station, tell them you'll shoot part-time news, you'll get free film and processing. <laughs> and so I thought, Oh, that sounds like a bloody good deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the uh, guy in the shop was real happy, of course. Yeah. But um, I ha had a look at the Bolex and I thought, you know what? I'm going to look pretty damn slick walking around with this camera. <laughs> and uh, so I bought it and uh, went out to the TV station. I knew nothing. I, I, I knew absolutely nothing about photography or about film or about anything really you know and I went, <laughs> so i went out to the because I, I i was studying dentistry at sydney university but that's a whole other story um yeah lots of lots of overlap there between yeah, dentistry. I know. And well it was good for physics and chemistry anyway <laughs> um, but uh yeah i went out to the tv station and uh for an interview and um they ended up giving me a hundred feet of film and told me to go out and shoot three, three stories uh, for the for the news uh, 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 over uh, shoot three stories over the weekend for the news on Monday, mm -hmm. and um, and their rule was you got a hundred foot load, no sound, and you had to shoot one story uh, per thirty feet of film, and um, you had to edit in camera because they just cut it. They cut their news stories straight out of the camera. So, oh, wild! Yeah, the film would go through processing, and the editor would measure it out by arm lengths. You know, it's like three <laughs> feet, six feet, nine feet. Okay, cut. That's the story. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not joking about that. Oh my god! <laughs> oh yeah, high quality at that point. But, but I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. When I went for the interview, the station manager said to me, um, "Now." How much experience do you have? Mm -hmm. And and I said, well, do you mean in color or black and white? <laughs> and and he said, well, let's talk about color. Mm -hmm. And because we'd only just transferred over to shooting color film, where mm -hmm. everything had been black and white. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, well, you know, I've shot a lot of stuff in color, uh, in black and white, but not a lot in color and he said well about how much and i and i'm and i'm thinking bloody hell i i have no idea how much <laughs> a lot of film is um so i'm going oh you know a lot a lot he goes yeah but about how much and i go oh i don't know i, I would say at least a thousand feet 
<laughs> and he goes, wow, a thousand feet. And I said, yeah, 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 at least. And, uh, and, and I never realized until many years later that a thousand feet of film, you know, the guys on national news are shooting a thousand feet every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, funny. <laughs> so anyway, I got, I got the job and I went off and, and, uh, started doing stringer work and then wanted to edit my own stuff. And the more I got into it, the more I loved it. And that's, that's basically how I got started in the industry. That's, but, um, did that answer your question? I think I got yes, rambling a bit. No, I love it, there. dude. It's good stories, man. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's fascinating. It's always interesting because a lot of folks that listen to the show, they're listening to the show and they're coming at, there's a lot of cinematographers, young cinematographers that listen to the show. And they're always asking like, uh, how do I get in and how do I get started and where do I come from? And everybody's got different paths in. And and it's surprising how many folks get into this business without even wanting to get into this business. They somehow find their way in uh, and find their way around. But the thing that's interesting to me is that, so you got in, you started doing new stuff. When did narrative start to speak to you? When was when was the idea of telling narrative stories your goal uh, you know you know the funny thing is i when i was at, at sydney university studying dentistry um i couldn't stand physics and uh so every time there was a physics lecture on i'd go to the movies <laughs> and and the weird thing is I, I was going to see things like music man sound of music south pacific funny girl mm -hmm. um, uh, my fair lady you know all musicals and I didn't realize that I actually liked musicals. Um, and uh, and I used to go and watch them, and, and there were things in them that I saw that I thought, oh, I wonder how they how that was done. You know, look, that looked fantastic, and this looked fair. But it never, never made me think, oh, maybe I should be making films, because back then there were no film schools, and, you know, how do you make movies? God only knows. I thought the only place they made movies was in America, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it never even crossed my mind that that could be something that, that you could actually do. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was, I, what was I talking about? I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> so you went and you saw these musicals. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, but, yeah, I didn't realize that um, – that, that that was the thing. And once I started doing TV news, mm -hmm. um, I really got into it and I, and I wanted to do it as, as well as I could. And the more I read about it um, and the more I watched old movies and stuff like that, the more, the more I really sort of got into the whole thing of storytelling and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I did um, uh, four years at the TV station as a one man band doing everything for the news Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and then I went in and I did some commercial work and some documentary work and and I went to a workshop at the main photographic workshops in uh, 1980. I was first Australian to ever go to the workshops there, mm -hmm. and um, and I met uh, Frank Stanley, uh, Owen Roisman, and Vilmos Sigmund. Mm. And uh, Vilmos said. You know, looked at some of the stuff I'd done, and he said, you know, why don't you come to America? And it was like, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let, me, let me go home, tell my wife, we'll pack up and we'll move over tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But um, over a couple of years, I was going back and forth. They, they started inviting me back to sort of uh, to help out at the workshops, and then eventually I was teaching at them. 
Mm. And um, over those years, you know, I, I met some of the top DPs on the planet and uh, Vilmos and uh, Laszlo Kovacs became really good friends and um, we uh, – uh, and, and they were really the ones who talked me into making the move over here. Oh, wow, man. Wow. Did well, I answer your question? It seems like I sort of started rambling about stuff. No, dude, it's good. Keep going with it. No, I'll good. let you know if it's not good. <laughs> okay, just already <laughs> shut up. Listen, what I was talking about was. <laughs> uh, all right. So, the, okay. So, technically, you know, there's it's a whole different world shooting. Um, like new stuff and documentary stuff than it is, uh, you know, crafting uh, the visual language of a story. So how did you wrap your head around that initially? Like, w was it through the, through the school that you were learning those tricks and techniques or was it just watching movies? And there's a lot to learn in there, you know? No, I, it, you know, to be honest, I, I don't really know how, how it all, that all that came about, but, I know I spent a lot of time uh, watching movies and and studying them, and then hanging out with guys like you know Vilmos and Laszlo Kovacs and Owen Roisman and those guys. Um, you know, I, I picked up a lot of stuff uh, from them, um, but it was mainly by by watching and reading and. Uh, and, and and I was sort of voracious, you know. I I, I just I couldn't get enough of it, mm. and uh, so when it came time to do tales from the uh, dark side, uh, like I said, I, you know, for seventy two hours before I didn't sleep. I mean, I was I was <laughs> panic stricken. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I was almost catatonic, you know. <laughs> and and my wife kept saying, you know, you should get some sleep. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't sleep. You know, I'm so bloody nervous. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it, it all came down to prep, you know, prepping how I was going to tell the story and, and uh, what sort of lighting ratios I was going to use. And I knew what f-stop I had to shoot at. So I knew where, you know, roughly where the ratios had to be to get the look I wanted. Yep. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm not saying I didn't make a lot of mistakes. I, I, I'm sure I did. But um, uh, but I did a lot of prep so that when I went in, those mistakes were minimal. Well, see, I know that there's a lot of younger cinematographers that are listening to the show right now that basically have come up and they they're using monitors and onboard monitors. A lot of yep. a lot of younger folks don't even use light meters, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah. Um, so when you're talking about light ratios and all that stuff, that was. I mean, the art of cinematography prior to digital was such a magician's craft almost, where you had to know all these tricks that were seemingly invisible to everybody else on the crew, you know, because you really couldn't see the stuff until uh, it was processed. The way light looks in real life, uh, once put through a lens and, and through uh, f-stop, looks a hell of a lot different on film. So it, it must have been incredibly nerve-wracking, you know? Yeah, well, also because it, you're right, because there were no monitors, you had to know um, you had to know your film stock, you had to know where you were putting your ratios, you had to know how those ratios were were, were going to translate. Mm -hmm. And and to be honest, um, you know, when uh, when HD started coming in, Sony had me flying all over the country, teaching workshops on feature film lighting for for high definition. Uh, and then the same with digital, you know, Panasonic flew me literally 
all over the world teaching people how to use the Panasonic cameras hmm. uh, and how to light like film for for digital. Mm-hmm. And um, the 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 problem now is um, that everyone's lighting off the monitor and everyone's trying to make fantastic shots. And our job as a cinematographer is to tell a story. Yeah. And and not only to tell a story, but to tell a story by making the camera invisible because your, your job is to engage the audience. And if the audience isn't engaged, you have that thing where, you know, sometimes you're sitting in a theatre and you pop back and you go, oh, shit, I'm out of the movie. I've got to get back into it. Yeah. And, and what does that? Well, what does it is people trying to – uh, show you what they can do with a camera. Yeah. You know, look what I can do with the camera. Look what, how I can move the camera. Look at all my beautiful lens flares. <laughs> you know, look at that. Lens flares are fantastic. <laughs> and look, I've even got an anamorphic lens flare, so you know I'm using anamorphic lenses. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, uh, to me, all that, all that lens flare stuff is um, – that's not filmmaking. That's making content. Yeah. You know, uh, to me, that's content's a great word because if you're if you're not worried about the audience, which you know, unfortunately in a lot of cases is the case, mm-hmm. um, then you're just making content. You're not a filmmaker. Uh, a film a filmmaker is always conscious of what the audience is looking at. Yeah, and and you know a good thing is the society the, the um, uh, it, it used to be called the SOC, Society of Operating Cameramen, but now it's the Camera Operators Society. But when the SOC started, um, their motto was "We see it first. <laughs> and and I always think, you know, every time I'm doing it, I think, you know, I see it first. So I've got to look at it as an audience. And it, and when I see people operating cameras by looking at a monitor. Um, to me, that's not what the audience sees. Your eye should be on the viewfinder because the audience is in a black room. Yeah. And all they're seeing is what's inside those those frame lines. So if your eye's not on the viewfinder, you're distracted by all this other stuff that's going on on the outside, you know, with the camera and the assistant and the actors and the lights and the, you're seeing everything. And uh, but you're focusing off this little monitor. But if your eyes on the viewfinder, all you see is the frame. Yeah. And and to me, that's um, uh, when when I talk to operators, I ask them, you know, how how do you do you use a viewfinder? And some of them say, well, I, I haven't used a viewfinder for five years. <laughs> it's like adios, amigo. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to to, to hear you say that because I've. I'm a I'm a student of the visual language. That's my thing. And if if there's something that I will use to advertise myself as a director, it's that. It's the it's knowing that movies are a visual language. There's over a hundred years of language that exists. Learn that language, but then write your own story with that language. I I love that. Yeah. Um, and uh, our industry, I think, for over ten years at least, our industry became a technical industry. It became like what what fucking camera are you shooting with and yeah like what resolution are you shooting and yeah, uh, you yeah. know it, it, the the technical side of it you know i've i've got a 
I've got a YouTube uh, channel that I've started putting videos up on, and and I don't talk about cameras and I don't talk about lenses. I talk about the artistic side of it and how you go about creating visual style and what you need to be able to to do that. Yeah, and the you know I I get really bored going to to like trade shows and standing around with people talking about the bloody technical parameters of a, of a zoom lens, you know, it's like, God, love a duck. You know, I, I, I couldn't care less. Yeah, me too. And it's like all this new equipment comes out and, and do I, do I go and look at it? Yeah, you bet. Do I shoot tests on it? Yeah, you bet. But do I want to stand around talking about that? No, I want yeah. to stand around talking about double indemnity Yeah, or, talking about the the you know the way alfred hitchcock used to block and stage his scenes mm-hmm. for shooting master scene or about rembrandt paintings or constable or turner or bierstadt or you know mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about creative stuff not not um oh my god you know i've got i've, I've got so many photo sites on my chip that uh, you just can't believe it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, see, I I I have such a passionate love affair with lighting. I really do. And when I started, I when I was teaching myself, I learned how to shoot film photos first because it was cheaper. And I'm like, okay, I'll learn how to expose. I'll learn about all that stuff using a film camera. And I really, really f- was enamored with the magical element that was lighting. And I remember for years, it was so beyond my comprehension. I was like, I just can't figure out what this means. And it wasn't until I started really seeing light like a camera does and really sort of noticing how light reacts. I remember, and it, it sounds so rudimentary, but I remember how much it blew my mind when I realized one day that that outside light registered as blue. <laughs> so yeah. then, and it was like, it was <laughs> like, an, film. Yeah, I felt like, yeah. I felt like uh, Neo waking, awakening into the matrix at that point where I was yeah. like, whoa, holy shit. <laughs> Uh, you know, once you get into this world, which in our, even in the modern world that we live in right now, where everything is so technical and everybody knows everything about cameras because their fucking phone does all these amazing camera things, lighting is still this magical sort of alchemy that, that most folks are just like, I don't understand it. Um, and what is your relationship with lighting? Like, how did you become obsessed with it? Um, well, really, um, you know, it was it was a matter of looking at um, what I liked and what I didn't like. Uh, but when I came over here, because growing up in Australia, all our beaches are golden, the lights golden. Uh, we've got sandstone everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the trees, uh, you know, the the leaves on all the gum trees are sort of like olives. So there's a lot of yellow in them. So my, I, I sort of was, I came here with a coral filter uh, <laughs> permanently in front of my eyes. And I, for a long time, I found it really hard to shoot anything blue. I'd, I'd, I'd light something that was a little bit blue or cold, and i go, oh, yeah, that doesn't look right. I'd better put a coral filter on. <laughs> and um, so so it, it, everything started to sort of have a little bit of this uh, warm golden wash to it all the time. And people ask me, because you know, – People here weren't doing that, and they kept saying, "How do you get that that thing?" And I said, oh, "I just use coral filters." And um, they said, "Well, why do you do that?" And it was, and it took me a while to sort of realize that, well, the light in California is very neutral and mm-hmm. and you know so- somewhat cold. It's not really golden. 
and the light in New York is sort of dirty and grey and, you know, except in the afternoons when it beams across 42nd Street as the sun's setting, you know, and it's all golden there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, New York's a bit blue and LA's a bit neutral and, and Australia was a bit warm and I didn't realise that I'd brought that with me, you know. And, and so uh, it was it was that sort of realisation that got me really uh, looking into it and, and really studying it. Um, and the influence that that Vilma Sigmund had on me with um, with getting me to really look at the old masters' paintings. Mm. I mean that that had that had a, a big impact on on the way I looked at lighting and the way I looked at light. But but uh, but there's one other thing, and I, and I meant to bring this up earlier when you said about people trying to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe the best way to get into the industry and to learn all that stuff, especially lighting, is to do documentaries. And and the reason is um, that when you do documentaries, you're under time pressure. Yeah. You generally only have one shot at getting something right. Um, your lighting is, is – you've got to understand the light because you, you – know, that's most times you've, you're only able to use what what lights available. Mm-hmm. So you've got to understand exposures. You've got to understand contrast ratios. You've got to understand latitude. You've got to understand dynamic range. You've got to understand how the light's falling and ha- how it's all reacting with the subject. Um, and what it does, it gives you a really fantastic baseline that you can draw on later on when you get into narrative film and. And that was one thing that that I fell back on when I was doing those first tales from the dark side. It was incredible the number of times I fell back on, you know, what would I do if this was a documentary? Right, right. Um, and and because all that stuff becomes your, like I said, becomes your baseline. Mm-hmm. And um, so you've got this background knowledge of stuff that's just built up over all the projects that you've done. And um, and that's invaluable uh, when you're doing narrative. You know, I mean, you really need that, especially if you've got to create something. You yeah. know, in a walk into a black stage and you've got to create something. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I started doing doc stuff as well, and there's something so fascinating about. We talk about restrictions before. There's so many at that point. If you're being a true documentarian, which I was always trying to judge myself of whether or not I was, whether or not I was being too manipulative. And so like if if I'm trying to capture what's actually happening, I really can't, I have to be incredibly invisible. Like I can't be affecting the subjects. I can't be affecting what's yep. happening. And I still have to be able to get beautiful footage and beautiful stuff. And so then you, you at least I did, I would teach myself how to do like a great story to, to, to give you some insight. I did a doc on um, street gangs in uh, Boston because originally I was from uh, Boston. And I did a documentary on some of the most violent street gangs. And Boston's got like 156 gangs or something like that. And I remember talking to the director ahead of time and we were talking about safety. And it was uh, how safe is this going to be for the camera crew? How safe is this going to be for my team of folks? Because uh, these these people aren't out gunning for strangers. They basically will gun for each other. And if we're going to be setting up scheduled times where we're interviewing these guys in one place, what if there's a drive-by? What if there's some sort of thing that happens? And 
And so what I designed with the team was uh, all long lens stuff. And so we shot the piece with with all, almost like a uh, National Geographic uh, uh, nature documentary because I w essentially wanted to keep my crew safe, but then also as a side effect, we were incredibly invisible to the subjects because we weren't even there. We were essentially yeah. across the street or we were in different places. And so the, the movie felt more real. And I, I just, I learned that uh, setting those restrictions and setting th those those rules, um, as long as first and foremost, obviously I was thinking about safety, but I was also thinking about being invisible to the film. And, and then at that point, having that third person perspective, I was also able to sort of study naturally what the lighting was doing naturally, how people were in their environments and, and looking for natural movements of energy and, and volleying of energy and coverage. It was a, it was a really fascinating lesson, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think also, um, <clears throat> the thing you learn is, um, uh, doing docos is the difference between being an observer and being a participant. Yeah. Because, um, when you're standing back on a long lens, you're, you're observing what's going on. And when you're, in on a wide angle lens, you're participating, and and that that that's really important to understand that in um, uh, in in narrative film mm -hmm. because um, you know one of one of the things I do in prep, and I, I'm actually prepping a feature right now, but um, one of the things uh, I, I said to the director is I like to structure all the lighting throughout the film. So it's like an orchestral piece. Oh, so I know, I know where it's going to be dark, where it's going to be light, where it's going to be contrasty, where the blacks are going to be deep and dark, and where where it's going to be high key. Um, <clears throat> I know I want to structure the colors so the colors are representative of the emotion of each of the scenes. Mm -hmm. And but I also structure the focal lengths so I know what focal lengths I'm going to be on for different scenes because they require a different sort of um, connection with the audience. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, some of them I want the audience in there right right in amongst it, and others I want the audience back observing a little bit. So I structure the lenses. So I've got, I've got structured contrast, I've got structured lighting, I've got structured color, and I've got structured lenses mm -hmm. so, that, so that the whole thing goes together. Um, and the way I look at it is it's like an orchestral piece. And um, uh, like putting together a symphony and the symphony starts and the symphony ends and in the middle you've got to take people on this journey. Mm. And, um, uh, and so my, my job then is to make sure all that combines to engage the audience all the way through. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you learn a lot of that stuff doing documentaries. You really do. All right, it is time to take a second, to take a moment to uh, talk about uh, the sponsors of the show. And also, let's get into it on, uh, you know, the equipment and the gear that uh, I use and that uh, we love. And uh, we try to suggest stuff to you. We try to find tools that will actually change your work. Um, and like Rob and I have been talking about on the show. Um, these are just tools. Uh, it doesn't matter what camera you use. 
as long as you figure out the parameters of that camera. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, honestly, it doesn't matter what edit system you use. It doesn't matter any of this. None of this stuff matters. At the end of the day, you're a storyteller. At the end of the day, you have to have your head wrapped around the language. You have to have your head wrapped around how an audience perceives your work. And then what you're trying to do is find the tools that give you the, as many options as possible to find the tools because a lot of these things cost some, some cash. Let's be real. It's an investment for a lot of this stuff. So you want to make an investment that will last. You want to make an investment that will adjust to your new ideas, to your new story pieces, right? Let's be real about it. So what I tried to do is partner up with sponsors that I use their tools that I believe are progressive, that aren't, they don't feel like just, <laughs> they don't feel like a fat cat with a warehouse full of shit trying to buy another Lamborghini. You know what I mean? <laughs> so first up, our friends over at Puget Systems. Let's focus this read for those of you who uh, edit, those of you who may have post-production houses, because there's a lot of, of uh, industry folks that listen to the show, believe it or not, you would think that everybody that listens to the show the way I talk on it, we're all young independent filmmakers. It's not the case, gang. I have folks from Company 3 listening to the show. There are folks from like huge uh, VFX houses that are listening to the show. It's pretty cool. It's cool. And, I, and welcome everybody that comes aboard. And if you are from any of these houses, if you are now hitting that point where you need to uh, support these new 12K cameras that are coming out in the marketplace, you just need uh, some better hardware to be able to keep up with this uh, virtual production stuff. Or if you're trying to get into these virtual sets, the you know, uh, the Mandalorian kind of shit, um, look into building a PC. Let's be real about it. Build yourself a PC. Why? PCs, in my opinion, are stronger and faster, but uh, they're also more affordable. They're a lot more customizable. You can be incredibly specific with them. You're not sort of uh, put in a box. The reality of it is you're not put in a box by a larger company that has deals with like, you know, processing companies and that has like backdoor deals with all sorts of different hardware manufacturers out there. You know what I mean? And you know, they're like, hey, here are your three choices. You know, make it work. Hmm. I'd rather have a system that works exactly for what I need. Um, but at the same token, I don't want to be building PCs. And when I ran my own post-production company, I didn't want to be fucking customer support for all the editors. I didn't want to be the guy that they'd call at three o'clock in the morning going, I got this weird render issue. You know what I mean? And so I did the search. I did the hunt. I wanted to find a company that had great customer support. I wanted to find a company that was, that had that knew what their customers were doing. They knew all of the nuances. They knew about what the software upgrade was gonna do to their hardware. They know all that stuff. I found Puget Systems. Check out, head on over to PugetSystems.com, check them out, see what it is that I'm talking about. These guys build super fast, uh, super amazing, beefy PCs, um, and they're affordable, like I said, real person customer support one of the things that, that one of the things that's really great is that they love to talk to their clients no matter how big or small you are they love to chat with you find out what it is that you need what it is that you're trying to build and they try to make that happen and if they can't they let you know and the other thing i love about puget is that they don't manufacture hardware 
so they don't have a warehouse full of shit that they're trying to pedal off on us. They're out there uh, benchmark testing, beta testing, running new pieces of hardware through software, trying to see if the newest graphics card actually changes uh, your work environment with that software that you're using. I'm telling you, they're a great fucking resource. So if you're running your own post-production facility, if you're getting to the point where people want more from you as a filmmaker and you suddenly have to build multiple systems and you want to make sure that they all work together, head on over to PewDiePieSystems.com. Talk to those guys. Uh, you'll get more bang for your buck uh, and then you'll get better customer support. I'm telling you. Uh, this show is a show about cinematography today. So let's let's talk about cameras and how... Oh, I can hear you all salivating. Ooh, what is he going to sell? What, what what cameras can we buy? Click, 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 right? Is there an Instagram account that I can sort through all sorts of like gear porn and, and see what's out there? No, no, no. But look, I'm going to talk about the camera that I recently picked up. And it's the first camera that I've purchased in, oh my God, at least eight years. Okay. So yeah. <gasps> gasp i've been shooting you know and prior to this you've heard me talk and i still believe in this wholeheartedly you know uh form great relationships with rental companies form really great relationships with rental houses because cameras turn over so quick it's so hard to keep up with the technology it's constantly being updated it's constantly being upgraded we go from 4k to 6k to 8k to 12k it's like what the fuck how do i how do i pay these things off and how do I stay in front of it? And at one point, I have to pay off this gear so that I can make money on this gear, right? That's part of the business model, right? Be smart about it. When you're going to pick yourself up a camera, grab something that isn't, in my opinion, grab something that isn't the top of the line. You can always rent the top of the line. Grab something for you that is affordable, that gives you plenty of options. I mean, I did a lot of research before I picked up my camera. That's why I went to Blackmagic and I got their uh, their cinema, their 6K Pro cinema camera. And I love it. I got it for a few reasons. One, everything that we're delivering that I'm delivering right now at its biggest, at its most is 4K. A lot of times I'm still delivering 1080 because it's just going on to a fucking iPhone somewhere. Right? <laughs> Let's be real about it. So 6K, I felt like I was at least a generation away from that being outdated. Plus the reframing abilities and when you downsize 6k down to like 4k or even down to 1080 it looks super crisp and clean uh the compression is really nice on that stuff and more importantly than anything else i wanted a camera that shot raw i wanted the ability to do color correction and really expand on the color correction and the, and the digital grading and i wanted a format that would run in my premiere timelines with raw because Sometimes, especially if you're doing uh, commercial stuff, right? And you're not getting like that picture lock uh, workflow that you really want. You know, sometimes after you do your color grade, they come back and they go, yeah, we would like to change this shot and this shot and maybe add the shot and two shots. And you're like, fuck, all right. I thought we were in picture lock, right? We've got everything picture locked. Uh, having the ability to do a grade quickly in the timeline using that raw footage saves my ass all the time and the codec that comes out of black magic is great for that um, i can't say enough great things about them head on over to blackmagicdesign.com 
They have a bunch of crazy new cameras coming out. But if you want my opinion, find something that works within your budget. Find something that's versatile. Find something that's a great second unit camera for you. So that way you can be at home. I don't know what's beeping. Someone backing up. <laughs> the serene sounds of Mike's studio. Um, something that you can have at home, something that you could be playing with, and something that you could, that you can be doing uh, additional shots for your pieces with. You know what I mean? Head on over to Blackmagic Design and check it out. All right. Did you finish back there, buddy? You got cops showing up. Got fucking beeping moving vans. Hold on. I'll be right back. All right. Here's the irony. That was a that was a <laughs> that was a Best Buy Geek Squad van <laughs> in the middle of our promo reads. Uh, all right. So also supporting the show is our friends over at Jambox, jambox.io. I cannot say this. I don't know how else to say this to you guys other than sign up for Jambox. Go to jambox.io right now. Listen to their music on there. Sign up for it. There's free trials. It is going to change your work. It's going to change your work today if you do this. So many people don't know how to find uh, licensed music for their pieces and they end up going to really shitty stock sites and they shoot beautiful footage with really crappy sound really crappy songs in it and i don't want to offend any of you by saying that but it's the truth and it doesn't matter how good your footage looks doesn't matter how beautiful it looks if you put it if you put shitty music underneath it it just ruins everything because i hate to say it on a cinematography episode of the show sound is worth more than visuals in film. You can always have shitty visuals and say that it was a stylistic choice. You cannot have shitty sound. You cannot have lackluster music. You just can't. You know what I'm talking about. Head on over to Jambox. Uh, these guys have been sponsoring the show. We love these guys. We're partnering up with them. If you head on over now, jambox.io, you can sign up if you're just a creator and you're making social media stuff, if you're doing podcast, web streaming, um, $9.99 a month or a 30-day free trial will give you access to a sound catalog that belongs on your Spotify list, right? I mean, the stuff that they have on here is so good. You've heard me play it on the show. And sometimes, I like I'm tricking you guys. Sometimes you think I'm playing like quote unquote a real artist, when I open the show, it's a Jambox artist because these are real artists. These are artists hired by Jambox to actually write albums, write songs specifically for them. They go through the process of planning out an album. There's an entire episode that I've done with the uh, owner of Jambox. Go back and listen to it. And he explains this process that he goes through. Uh, but in the meantime, let's get to this read. If you're someone that's out there creating commercials, they have a creator plan for $19.99 a month, and you can get access to all their music, sound effects, and stems for their music to be used in paid advertising, corporate business, weddings, all that kind of stuff. And if you're a student, you're trying to learn the craft, you're trying to get your shit out there, right? It's just going on your reel, six bucks a month. Six bucks a month for all of it. And maybe you're tired of subscriptions. 
I'm doing my taxes right now, man. Holy shit, the amount of money I spent on subscription services. Maybe that's something that you want to you don't want to do. You can do single song licensing with these guys for like 20 bucks a song. That's nothing. Right? So head on over to jambox.io and check it out. All right, cinematography episode continues. Um, but before we get into it, let's talk about lighting. Let's talk about our relationship with ETC. A lot of us in the film industry have been using the iconic Source 4 profiles on set. ETC, the maker of the Source 4, has been working hard in recent years to give us incredible new fixtures specifically for use with cameras. Now, before I continue this, uh, I just did a post a few weeks ago um, which shows uh, me using a Source 4 profile on one of Gina's photo shoots. You can actually see it in use. Love these lights. Um, I also got my hands on their FOS slash 4 Fresnel. And one of the most eye-catching aspects of this line of fixtures is its color mix. Their luster, I'm sorry, their luster X8 array includes deep red emitters, which uh, not only lead to more color mixing options than you would get with your traditional 4Studio color fixture, but also leads to a richer, more natural beam of light in any color point that you use. Once you see these fixtures on skin tones for yourself, it is truly surprising how much of an impact Deep Red makes on any situation on set. If you're not familiar with ETC, all other fixtures are backed by 24-7 customer support. See the FOS slash 4 panel or Fresnel yourself by visiting etcconnect.com backslash love the process. That is etcconnect.com backslash love the process. And as always, you will find links for all of our sponsors in the description of this episode. Click on them. Just do it right now. Click on them. And if you love the show, visit any of these guys on their Instagram account and just say, we hear you on Mike's show. We love your stuff. Thank you so much for supporting In Love With The Process. That's it. Let's get back into it with Rob. Yeah, man. I love to hear that you do that stuff. I'm I'm also prepping a feature right now and uh as a director and, and my prep's a little bit different than it would be as a cinematographer. And I'm going through scenes and sequences and, and coming up with options for actors. And I'm coming up with what I think the emotional context of that moment is and what is the emotional uh, journey that happens within that scene. And then how does that connect to the next scene? And so I find myself just writing down different uh, uh, emotional cues that I would then, because I also storyboard. So then I'll take those emotional cues. And when I'm working with my storyboard, I'll go, okay, so from my experience as a cinematographer, what lens really sort of pushes or counteracts this emotional piece that I'm trying to do here? And how how will the audience feel if I shoot this with a 150 as opposed to shooting this with a 35 millimeter? And, and what does that mean? And, and I think that what I spent years doing and what I would employ that the young filmmakers that are listening to the show do is go back and watch the movies that you really love and, and try to 
pinpoint those scenes and how you felt in those scenes and then just watch it again and 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 try to register what it is that made you feel that way was it the sound cues is it the lens choice is it the lighting that does that thing is it the blocking because there's uh, there's a lot of techniques in play to make you feel that way and if you can learn that language if you can understand that language and see that language then you can start to write with that language you know what yeah. i mean <clears throat> yeah i there's, there's um a long time ago, I, I, uh, one of the first books I ever bought was called The Impact of Film by, by I think it was Charles Madsen. And um, it was, um, it was a, a book that went through all the, really all the creative aspects of filmmaking, not, not so much, uh, not very much technical, but, but creative stuff. And one of the sections in it was uh, the grammar of cinematography. Oh, I love it. And, 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 uh, um, the grammar of cinematography and the syntax of editing, mm. and um, uh, and what it did is it went through and it broke down the the importance of of lens choice and focal length and and how you frame a shot and how where the characters move to the camera away from it or in a diagonal from one side to the other you know from the mm. bottom left to the top right or the top left to the bottom right. Um, all that sort of stuff, and um, to me, uh, I mean, I, I, when when I there, there are a few directors that I work with, and um, one of them is John Harrison, and, and John and I are, are real film noir fans, and so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. spent a lot of time watching film noir, and we always go into that that classical, you know, grammar of of telling the story in a film noir style, mm. um, because. Because we love that, but I think um, the the problem the the problem that I'm seeing these days is the camera. Everyone has this attitude: the camera's always got to be moving, mm. and um, the camera doesn't have to always be moving. Sometimes it's good just to move the actors. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, because yeah. that can tell, that can tell a a, a much more uh, powerful story than uh, moving the camera, but. Um, you know, the cameras do it's it's almost like uh, you know the camera's got to be a gymnast these days <laughs> and, yeah <laughs> and uh, you know it never stops moving and um, to me uh, you lose the the impact of a push in or or a dolly out or or a zoom in or a zoom out and you know I've heard people say oh my god you know you, you shouldn't ever use a zoom and it's like well why, why not? not yeah why not it's because a Zoom is a really powerful storytelling tool. Yeah. If yeah. if you use it as a zoom as a zoom rather than variable focal length lens. Yeah. And uh, I say, well, now no one uses zooms. You go, well, you know, have you ever seen anything that Stanley Kubrick shot? Yeah. <laughs> or De Palma or anything yeah, old school. Brian De Palma, yeah. Yeah. Man. Kubrick uses zooms a lot. And and it's it's a different way of drawing the audience into the into the action and um but all these all these little nuances are slowly being lost because we're so busy you know flying the camera around all over the place and whacking it on drones and see and uh, all that sort of stuff you know i think that comes back to the technical bullshit you know what i mean where like everybody's being sold like stabilizers and like all this kind of bullshit and I, like I look back and I, you know, I've been studying a lot, especially through, through the pandemic, because all we had was time to watch and study things. And so um, I was watching a lot of old 
Toho Studio stuff. And, you know, growing up, I was a huge Godzilla nerd, but also the old Kurosawa stuff. And yep. you go back and you watch uh, the blocking in those pieces. It makes sense why they chose anamorphic. Anamorphic wasn't uh, selected because they wanted sweet flares. Anamorphic wasn't selected <laughs> for like the Michael Bay aspect of it. It was selected because they needed a larger stage. And oftentimes they wanted to be able to do a close up with two or three people in it. Or, yep. and you would watch, I remember the, what movie was it? Oh Jesus. I'm not gonna remember, but I was watching this film camera was, was locked off and it was facing, it was in an office facing a door and the door opens and three people walk in, three actors walk into the space. They all step in and they're all sort of standing and looking at each other. They close the door, they start to have a conversation. And it's basically like a wide with three folks that's like head to waist. And then as this conversation continues, they take turns moving towards a close-up, moving yeah. towards the camera. So they give you within the blocking, the camera doesn't fucking move. Within the blocking of it, you get all the coverage that you need, uh, wide shot, over the shoulder, two shot, and each time the folks move into a different portion of that frame, it's motivated by the emotional context of what it is that they're doing. Yeah. And, and so examining that, you realize the power of uh, blocking. And you understand that like, hey, look, we're so obsessed with, it's like, it's like buying a cake and being obsessed with the sprinkles that you put on top of it. Like <laughs> so, so hyper-focused on the, on the one element that, you know, let's get deep, let's get into the layers of it. And, and, and what does the wardrobe say? And, and you start talking about, and this is my obsession recently. Uh, you start talking about Kurosawa and the elements. What do the elements play into it? What does wind mean? What does rain mean? What does fire yeah. mean? Like uh, it, that's when it starts to get really fucking exciting. And I know that there's a lot of young directors that are listening it's very intimidating to feel like you need to have the answers for everything. And folks come to you with a thousand questions a day. And it's same thing with a cinematographer. They come to us with a thousand questions a day. Uh, and being a young person, you're like, how the fuck do I have all these answers? The move, in my opinion, is to become obsessed with the language, become obsessed with all these different things and prep, 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 prep. And then you're going to find these answers that are stimulated by, by enthusiasm, that are stimulated by by uh, drive and passion because you start to understand that there's an invisible language that you get to be in on and you get to be sort of a trickster with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of what we do, uh, it you know, should be subliminal. And um, as a cinematographer, you know, the, the, like, like I said earlier, the, I, I see my job as keeping the camera invisible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when, when I'm doing something, I'm not trying to make a reel and I'm not trying to make a whole series of fantastic images that I could sort of blow up and put up on my wall or put on Instagram. <laughs> um, what I'm doing is trying to engage the audience and keep them involved in the story. And, and whatever I do in, in, in front of the camera, um, is it, the goal of it is to progress the scene, you know, push the story forward. And, um, uh, but you know, things like, and I keep coming back to lens flare, you know, every time I see a lens flare, it just drip, it pops me straight out of the movie and you go, Oh, well, that's a fantastic shot, but, um, hang on, what are we, what's the story? And <laughs> <laughs> you know, why, why is the sun shooting straight down the barrel of the lens? 
<laughs> and why are there anamorphic lens flares coming off the candles? <laughs> you know, and it, it, and it's all stuff that's just to me uh, a big distraction. But that that to me that reduces what's being shot to content instead of it being you know uh, real filmmaking. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a it's a thing, and I, like it's funny you start saying that because I I grew up in the 80s so like when you were getting into it i was a kid so when i'm when i'm watching this stuff what you're doing is a big portion of what my visual language is now because i think that it doesn't matter what generation of filmmaker you are you always it's so funny when you look if i was to point out the greats like uh you know john carpenter right and, and i'm like i yep. love john carpenter's the thing well he loved the original thing when he was a kid <laughs> so yeah. so he's making the stuff that he saw as a kid uh, and same thing with Spielberg and all these other folks that have influenced us. Um, so in that period of time, I get the lens flare thing. I get why people started with it because it was such a wonderful accidental thing that happened in a lot of these different films. Um, and that's part of that nostalgic language right now. And it, I think nostalgia is a big portion of the of the streaming service stuff right now. You know what yeah. I mean? It's a big part yeah, of it. I think the the thing the thing with all all that stuff though is it's um, it was stuff that we tried to avoid. You know, we, you'd go out of your way to avoid um, anything uh, hitting the lens. You, you wouldn't want any washes on the lens because that would change the contrast. Yeah, um, you wouldn't want any flares on the lens because that would distract the audience and. Um, uh, and you wouldn't, and and I remember the first time I used anamorphic. You know, it was like we're we're going, we're shooting in New York City, and we're going out of our mind trying to stop all the anamorphic flares coming off the cars. <laughs> and um, uh, and 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 now it's like there's so many anamorphic flares. It's like, hang on, what are we looking at? Oh, it's a street with cars in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm being a bit mean to to flares. I mean, <laughs> I've got to be honest. That back, back when I first started shooting documentaries, there was a a guy in Australia who was, was a fantastic documentary cameraman, Paul Tate, and um, he used to do these incredible shots where he would get a lens flare and you'd see all the colours, you know, circles going all the way down the barrel of the lens. It was like, oh man, that looks fantastic. I've got to do that, <laughs> and. Um, it was so hard to get that shot, but uh, but when you got it, it looked fantastic. But all it was was a great shot, you know. It was yeah. like, did it tell the story? No, it was just a great shot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that's the most important thing that you're saying, and I I hundred percent agree with you. And I'm so happy that you're on the show, uh, you know, giving us your experience uh, to sort of enforce this. That it at the end of the day, it isn't about your fucking real. It isn't about yeah. that. And I just did um, an episode with another cinematographer. Oh, who was it? I can't remember. But we did another episode and we were talking about, oh, it's what's his name that just shot the new Ghostbusters. We were talking about uh, reels and how I say to, to, to cinematographers all the time, don't cut your reels to music. Like actually have scenes scenes on your reel because then i can see as a director you know if you have the skills to make the shots match maybe you were shooting one side of the room three weeks prior to the other side of the room and then what is your visual language 
And how does yeah. it all cut together? I mean, yep. we're so obsessed with like super sexy sizzle reels that uh, everybody, that a lot of young shooters are like, hey, I got to get my fucking drone footage in this reel. And I have to get, <laughs> you know, this thing and that. And, and it's like, that, okay, great. That's great if you're doing, <laughs> if you're shooting like, you know, like uh, nightlife docs or if you're shooting uh, commercials to a certain extent. But you know, if you're going to try to get into narrative, man, you got to you got to show us the language that you're learning. Yeah, you know? I, I I agree with that. I mean, I've my reels have always been uh, really long because that's that's I, I my belief is that when a director looks at my work, he wants to see that you can cut a scene together, that you can yeah. you know how to tell a story with lenses, that you know how to maintain lighting continuity. Yeah, um, and. Um, yeah, not that you can make a Super Bowl commercial, yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, unless you want to shoot a Super Bowl commercial, but um, yeah, I, I've always believed that, and I haven't had a reel for probably twenty years. Mm-hmm. And someone called me the other day and said, "Can you send us your reel?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and and uh, I said, "I've been doing this for forty years." What do you want to see a reel for? Can you look on IMDb and see what I've done? <laughs> and they go, oh, well, we've looked on IMDb, but we need to see your reel. And it's like, well, what do you need to see on it? <laughs> and uh, it's like, well, basically, we need to see that you could shoot our show. But, you know, it's like, we want to see if you've already shot our show, because if you have, it would be really fantastic to have you on it. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's kind of weird. I said, well, I, I don't have a reel. You know, I, I don't do reels anymore. So, um uh, they went, oh, you know, well, what do we do? And I said, well, there's plenty of stuff you can watch. And I, <laughs> oh, I have to sit down and watch a whole movie? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a whole different mentality. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's about, you know, how do I, how do I, uh, you know, shop for a cinematographer in this, in the cheapest way possible. I was talking to uh, Daniel Pearl, who shot uh, Texas Chainsaw. Oh, yeah. And uh, we were joking around because he, uh, got asked i forget who he was asked by i'm gonna screw this up i think he was asked by a producer or someone if he wanted to do the remake and so and so the remake was being produced by michael bay and uh daniel daniel had worked with michael bay on some of his biggest music videos he had done like uh the meatloaf video like all these really great videos and michael bay supposedly according to uh to uh daniel michael bay was like Who's this guy? Can I see a real? <laughs> Can I see a real? And oh, yeah. Daniel was like, "How about you just send him the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> 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 and the music videos we did together?" <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. It's a uh, you know, I, I think it's just that producer mindset where producers are so used to like getting choices and getting things their way. And I, yeah, uh, well, yeah. well, when um, when uh, operators. Uh, come to me that you know quite often operators will bring in a a, a demo reel and I, you know when, when I've got to have you know like if we're if we're doing a day where we need five cameras or something like that yeah um, uh, and and they'll bring in a demo reel and you look at it and you go well look you know quite honestly I don't want to see a demo reel just show me your best five still photographs yeah and they go oh um, Oh, hang on, I might be able to find someone here. And I say, you haven't got your best five still photographs that you can just pull up real quick and show me. Ah. And um, they said, well, why do you want to see still photographs? Because, you know, this is – we're shooting a series or a movie. 
And you go, yeah, but I want to see how you compose a shot. Yep. And they yep. go, oh, um, well, you know, the way I compose a shot is, and I go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great, but show me, you know, show me, show me a still photograph. So um, I tell them now up front, I say, if you're coming in for an interview, bring your best five still photographs because I want to see them. And uh, I, and I, but I don't look at their reels. I've got no interest in looking at their reels. Ah, see, that's okay. That's a good pointer for a lot of you operators that are listening to this. <laughs> yeah. That's a good pointer for you guys. Yeah. Well, the the thing is, you know, most guys, you, if someone's coming in for an interview with me, I'll look on IMDb, and I know, I I know if they they've got the skills or not. You, yeah. you just got to look at the look at the resume. So the resumes tell me that, you know, they've got the skills and you look at the people they've worked with and you go, okay, these guys are going to be good. All I want to all I want to know is creatively, who are you creatively? You mm-hmm. know, just show me show me your your, your compositional style. And um, uh, that's that's really what I what what I want to see. Well, it makes sense because that operator is a tool for you at that point. It's like it's like hiring a a, a paintbrush and you want to know what they like what is their zero point you know what i mean that you want to know like how do you see like if you were just to throw a camera on this person what would you do initially and what would what makes you feel like that's that's it that's the correct yeah. shot that's what you need to know yeah you and know? i one of the things that that because uh, all through the 90s um i was shooting a lot of tv movies and I was pretty much the busiest DP in Hollywood all through the nineties. If there'd been three of me, all three of me could have been working nonstop. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I was doing a, a lot of the stuff I was doing was non-union, even though it was for the networks. And, um, that all came to an end in around about 97 and 98, something like that, or 90, 96 or 97. But, um, yeah, I was doing all these movies and I was operating myself. And, and I love operating. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, so uh, I could I could tell if the dolly grip missed his mark by half an inch. And wow. because I knew where I knew exactly where my frame was going through a dolly move um, and and I knew exactly what my end frame was. So we'd get to the end frame and I, and I'd say, I'd, I'd sort of lean back from the camera and I'd feel the, ca- the dolly just move a little bit and i go, why did you move the dolly? And he goes, ah, oh, you know, i go, yeah, you're off the mark by about half an inch, right? And he goes, yeah, I was, sorry. And it was like, <laughs> you know, like oh, does it make a difference? It's like, yeah, it does. It makes a difference to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, it's all composition. Yeah. It's all composition. But, it, but it's like... Um, you know, I, I I was very very specific that when and and with operators that when you line up a shot, um, I want that shot to start and I want it to finish in exactly the same positions every time, mm-hmm. and and if it's a transitional shot going from one place to another, I want it to pass through the same sort of I, I call them keyframes now mm-hmm. I want it to pass through the same keyframes all the way through the move until it gets to the end and I want it to start and finish in exactly the same spot on every take and I don't care how many takes we do wow and um, uh, and and quite often they'll say well you know what different what, what why does that matter and it's like because it just does and it just that's the shot I want 
That's why it matters. Well, and the, having that co- that continuity and that consistency, you don't know what they're going to use in the edit room. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that makes that makes all the sense in the world. You know. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? As you were saying that, it took me. I remember when I was trying to figure out how to work with dollies. I remember when I started. And, and like, I remember when I first had a Fisher 11, you know, and I had a whole crew and I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I direct what this is supposed to be? Like, how do I direct how the camera is supposed to move from position A to position B? And I was very fortunate to work with a bunch of really great key grips. And, uh, they taught me about keyframes because I never really, I never really thought about that when I was thinking about how do I plan out a dolly shot? And it was like, show us the start frame, show us the end frame, we'll measure the height, we'll put everything together, we'll we'll throw it all in there, and then give us certain keyframes throughout it, and then we'll we'll play in that game. Um, and then I started to think about my keyframes differently when I started to storyboard shots and started to plan out shots, you know? Yep. It's an interesting, I never really thought about it that way. And it was, when yeah. you mentioned keyframes, I was like, all right, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, can I tell you a funny Dolly story? Sure. When I first came over here, I was asked to shoot a uh, a commercial for, and I can't even remember who it, who who the company was now, but it was for Gray Advertising in New York, uh-huh. and um, uh, and they and they had some really big uh, Broadway star was was uh, acting in it, but I, but I can't remember I can't remember much about it <laughs> other than the Dolly story. Okay, and. Um, so they said to me, um, you know, uh, the director said he wanted to do a dolly shot in this uh, bedroom, uh, in, a, in a little kid's bedroom. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, and I will, we'll get a dolly. And he said, well, what sort of dolly would you like? And in Australia, the only dolly I'd ever used was an Elamac dolly. Okay. You know, a little Elamac spider dolly. Mm-hmm. And um, with the central post that, that you know, basically you set it and you just dollied. You couldn't boom or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, he said, "Oh, you can have any any dolly you want. You know, Moviola. You know, just went through all the names, and I didn't know any of them. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Uh, why don't we get the Moviola? And um, so uh, they said, "Oh, are you sure? Hey, the Moviola? Because we're in a five story walk up in Manhattan." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, let's get the Moviola. That'll be that'll be fantastic." Uh-huh. So the day of the shoot, I arrive. And I'm walking up the stairs and I hear all this bitching and moaning and swearing and banging and crashing. And I walk up and it's it's about 10 guys trying to carry this gigantic moviola oh studio dolly up the stairs. And I thought, bloody hell, that thing's a bit bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have a clue how big it was. Yeah. Anyway, we put it in the room and the room was about 10 feet long and the dolly was about 8 feet long. So the dolly move was like, yeah, there was no dolly move because you could, <laughs> you basically couldn't move it. And the, the director came in and he's looking at it and he's going, what the hell is this all about? And I said, well, you wanted a dolly move? And he goes, yeah, how are you going to do a dolly move with this? And I said, well, yeah, maybe we'll just have to do it handheld. <laughs> and so it ended up being a handheld move. But, um, yeah, I mean, the – all of those guys uh, refused to ever work with me again. And yeah. it was it was the first commercial I shot in New York, and I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to get to use a dolly that can boom up and down and do all this stuff. You know, it was going to be great. Yep, yep. So mm-hmm. after that, 
I made sure I went and uh, had a look at all the different dollies and learned what they were and what they did. (laughs) And how much they weighed. (laughs) How much they weighed and whether you can take them up a five-story (laughs) walk-up. It's so funny. I had a very similar story. I was hired to direct and uh, we ended up finding this location. And originally, I had planned it to be all dolly and very specific dolly moves. And uh, we get to this location. I'm, I'm there with the producer. And uh, we're walking up these rickety old stairs. And I'm just going, oh, man. And we're walking up these stairs. And he looks at me and goes, well, what, what's, what's wrong? And I go, I can't, I can't bring a fucking dolly up here. <laughs> like I can't, I can't do that. And he used the producer and he's like, oh, well, we can do whatever you want, man. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll get the guys to carry it up. And I go, no, they're all going to revolt. <laughs> they're going to revolt on yeah, us. You like, were right. <laughs> yeah. Get, let's do, let's get a steady cam op up here. Instead. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll just change it, man. You know, cause these guys are going to fucking slash my tires. when we're done. With it. So yeah, I had the same situation that you yeah, I, I wasn't very popular, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the game. I, and I think those are really fun stories. Um, but when you're planning these things, when we're younger, we always think we, we put these, we put cinematographers and directors up on pedestals, right? We see them from the outside. You're flipping through America's Cinematographer magazine. You see all the glossy images and you see, you see this guy on a dolly pointing at people, you know, and you're like, wow, that's what it's like. And that's the fucking life. <laughs> but the reality scenario is, is moments like that. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we loved, a lot of the things that we see on film when we go, wow, how did they plan those things? Oh, I just chose it to be a fucking steady cam so that the guys didn't slash my tires. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, so sometimes those are decisions that have to be made. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man, it's good stuff, man. Uh, Rob, how are you doing on time? You okay? Oh, I'm fine, yeah. Oh, great. We'll talk a bit more because I'm having fun with this. Um, well, let's shift gears slightly and uh, – Let's get into let's get nerdy about lighting. Um, you you brought up a point subtly, which is one of my favorite points, um, which is like having to light a dark room, <laughs> having to light uh, a dark stage, like a sound stage. Yeah. If you, if you go into a space right and you built a set, what's the first light you turn on? Uh, that's a that's a good one. Well, the the thing. Um, the thing for me is, uh, you know, I've, if I'm going into a stage and there's a set there, I've got a pretty good idea how I'm how I'm going to light it mm-hmm. before I actually turn up. So it's not like I'm I'm not I'm not going to turn up and and then try to work it out on the spot. And um, you know, normally I'll have a pretty good idea of where I want the lights, and and they'll all be already be roughed in. Um, so. Uh, you know, unless unless I'm just going in to to look at um, uh, to look at a set after it's been constructed, you know, then obviously you just turn on whatever's whatever's there to to have a look at it. But sure. But generally, when I go in uh, on a shoot day, I'll have the lights all roughed in, I'll, I'll, and so I know exactly where where my starting point is, and that might change, mm-hmm. you know. For you know, but but that's but I know I know where my starting point is. But if I walk into a practical location, normally what I'm doing is closing blinds, turning lights off. You know, mm-hmm. I want to see what it's like as dark as as possible um, with just one source light uh, because I, I like 
I like single source lighting. Mm-hmm. And um, so as much as possible, I try to visualize everything as single source. You know, if it's daytime and I've got a room full of windows, the sun is going to be coming through the window on the right and everything else is going to be fill light mm-hmm. or, or the sun's going to be coming through the left depending on the story and, and I'll change that depending on the story and the blocking and staging and how we go, how we put the scene together. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of – it's sort of an interesting point because I get asked that a lot by people, you know, like how do you know where to start? Mm-hmm. And the, the way you know where to start is you've got to have – a personal point of view. You've got to have a POV. And and that POV is built up from your experiences, from all the things you like mm-hmm. uh, and why you like them and all the things you don't like and why you don't like them. And so, you know, like do you like classical music? You right. know, what sort of classical music do you like? Do you like Rembrandt? Caravaggio, Constable Turner, Bierstadt, Hopper, you know, um, uh, Andrew Wyeth, you know, what, what, what sort of paintings do you like and why do you like them or mm-hmm. why don't you like them? And, and it's all that stuff that sort of mills around in my head um, and, and, and helps me work out where, where that basic lighting pattern is going to come from. And, um, you know, I, I tell people that, one of my favorite painters is Turner. And, mm-hmm. and the reason I like Turner is because he, he doesn't have any clearly defined subjects. All his stuff is swirls of color and, and shape and, and texture, and there's, there's no real shape or form. It's just it's really more or less left up to the, the viewer to interpret what he's, what he's doing. Yeah. And, and, and I love that. And if I could shoot every movie like that, that's how I would shoot it. That's cool. But of man. course, uh, no one would watch it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So, so, um, so, but that's in the back of my mind is is Turner paintings. So I'm always trying to basically destroy the image as much as I can, so that it looks as close to what would be, a, it could be construed as a Turner painting as, as possible. Huh. Now, you can't always do that because, you know, the story dictates right. different things. But but that's part of of, uh, of who I am and it's part of what I try to get out. And the same with, um, you know, uh, well, I'll give you an example. When I shot Spitfire Grill, mm-hmm. um, we it, it was set in Maine. Uh, we shot it in Vermont, but I I wanted uh, to shoot it like um, Andrew Wyeth paintings. Okay, and because uh, and Andrew Wyeth's paintings were um, was was sort of mostly kind of cold. Uh, they they had they had browns and and yellows and and uh, ochres, but they were cold browns and yellows and ochres. They weren't warm browns, you know, so they. There were browns that were skewed to the blue, yeah. not browns that were skewed to the red. And then he had little splashes of muted colours, like blues and reds and greens and and bright yellows. And uh, so, what I wanted to do was, I wanted to to shoot Spitfire Grill, uh, and 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 that to make it look like an Andrew Wyeth painting. 
Mm. And um, and the funny thing was when I turned up for the interview, they said, um, so what do you think, you know, what, what are you thinking in terms of visual style? And I pulled Christina's world out of my bag and put it on the desk. <laughs> and the production designer was there and he reached under the desk and pulled his copy of Christina's world out. And it was like, <laughs> okay, I've got this job. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, to answer your question, all, all of that stuff – mills around in in my mind and 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 uh um and and that's how i come up with a a lighting design but but really where do you start you start from from inside yourself you know what what's your pov yeah um because if you don't do that uh, and i see this happening a lot now is everything starting to look the same yeah and why is it all looking the same because Everyone's watching the same YouTube videos, and uh, and everyone's imitating everybody else instead of going out and saying, "Okay, what? How do I see this story?" They're going, "Oh, you know, I'd like to have a shot with a nice lens flare in it, and I'd like to have a <laughs> shot with an anamorphic lens flare to show that we're using anamorphic lenses." And you know, I, I mean, that's being a bit flippant. I mean, people, you know, hopefully don't really do that, but. That's how it appears. And um, so people should go into, into that black room with their own internal POV that's been built up over the years, and which is their baseline. You know, that's yeah. their documentary experience. It's their, yeah. you know, what they like in art, what they like in music, what they like in books, what they, uh, what they like in live theatre. Um do you, do you like rainy days? Do you like sunny days? Do you like early mornings or do you like late afternoons? Do you like magic hour in the morning or do you like it in the afternoon because they're both different? Doesn't matter mm-hmm. where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all all that stuff is is how you come up with you know what you're doing when you walk into that black room. It's all wonderful. Did that, did that answer your question? It does, and I'm gonna <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna push even further. I'm gonna expand on that a bit because. That is a beautiful way to have your research done. That's a beautiful way to come in. That's a beautiful way to get started. I find that when I, I, one of the things that I learned when I started to shoot was that I would spend all that time and I would prep that and then I would light for these scenarios and then I'd bring actors into my lighting and I'd have to make an adjustment based upon how actors were reacting in lighting and how each an individual each individual's face is different and how light moves on their face and how, um, you know, set back eyes or raised brows, like all that stuff ends up having to tweak how I at least like my close-ups because of that scenario. Do you, do you find that you have to do the same thing? Like you, you, do you come in and do like a broad stroke light setup for your stuff and maybe you have some stand-ins come through? Do you find yourself having to change things uh, for your talent, at least for the first shot, like shot, you know, shot one day one. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I, and and um, like on uh, on something like Creep Show where where it's like machine gun fire, you know, and you're just going so fast. Um, yeah. The really, you know, I I use as few lights as possible um, because you really don't have enough time to be uh, messing around. And um, so what what I'll do is I'll I'll rough in a lighting setup, and then I'll get the actors to come in. And, and I'll ask them not to leave the set, you know, so because I'll, I'll tell them I'm going to be really fast. Yeah. Um, and then I'll get them to come in, just do a quick walkthrough so I can have a quick look, make the little tweaks that I need to make. 
and then off off they go. Yeah. But um, on a feature, um, I'll have a pretty good idea of what I need to do with a lot of the actors. And, you know, some actors really don't key well from the left or some actors don't key well from the right and some actors you can't have a, a key light too high and some you can't have it too low mm-hmm. and some actors don't like lights in their eyes and, you know, uh, and some wear glasses. And so I take all that stuff into into account and that goes into my, uh, into my notes. Um, so I know what to expect uh, ahead of time. And so yeah. when I rough the lights in, I can rough them in knowing how I want it to look, but also taking into account all those little nuances that you've got to take care of. And there's always tweaks that, that you've got to make, but as long as you've got that basic plan, um, you know, I, the one thing I hate doing is walking onto a set and not knowing what I'm going to do. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and I don't have to worry about that because I never do it. Um, but, uh, you know, I never walk onto a set and don't have, uh, without having a clear idea of, of, uh, what I'm going to do. Even, even sometimes, um, when you have a location that you, that, you know, sometimes you have to go to locations that you haven't seen before. Right. And, um, but in my mind, I know, you know, I I will have seen a picture and uh, and I'll have a pretty good idea of how I want it to look, and then when I get to the location, I've just got to light it so that it looks the way I want it to look for the story. Yeah. Um, and you know, and it, it, it might be, you know, you're going into a, a warehouse, for example, with windows, and you want to have light streaming through the windows. Well, um, you know, instead of Instead of what I was originally going to do was use two Ks, I might have to use twelve Ks or something like that. Right, um, right, right. Uh, of course, we don't use twelve Ks anymore because you don't have time. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. not in TV. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous the schedules. That's a whole other conversation that I've had a couple of times on. Like, oh my god, the level of quality and the the demand that uh, streaming services and TV have these days, and then the amount of time you don't have to pull it off. It's like insane. Oh, you got to work so fast. And um, yeah, the interesting thing on Creepshow, and, and one of the things that I find really challenging is, first off, there's, we do 12, basically 12 half-hour stories for every um, each season, which is six episodes. Mm-hmm. And each story's got to have a slightly different uh, visual style but still have the characteristics of creep show, which is the you know, colored lights and, and, and all the creep show style. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, uh, but you have three and a half days to shoot a half hour. It's crazy. And so, uh, and, and the one thing you need, as you know, in, in horror is a lot of shots. Yes. And, um, so the, the speed you've got to work, I mean, is just, is it's sort of ludicrous in a way, but uh, but it's also part of the challenge. You know, I, I I find it really challenging to say, okay, how am I going to fit all the stuff we've got to do today into a twelve-hour day? Yeah, and um, uh, and and for me, you know, to to be able to pull that off as part of me doing my job, you know, okay, it's got to, still got to look good, mm-hmm. um, but can I do it in the time and within the within the parameters of time and budget? 
Yeah. And um, and and when I do that, it makes me feel really good. You know, like I've like I've I've achieved something for myself, and I've helped the production as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 such a weird. I mean, it's all about working with restrictions. That's what we were talking about before, and, and then understanding the format that you're playing in. It's it's so fascinating because as an audience member, you really aren't taking that stuff into consideration. And these days, we have so much stuff to look at, so much content to be judging things against. And and most folks don't realize that some shows may have like enough money to, for it to be an independent film, and then other shows are doing twelve episodes on the budget of an independent yep. film. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it really does change a lot of that stuff. And you really start to see it in the coverage. I think at the, at, at the end of the day, it's just how many shots you can pull off in a day. And, you know, they might have like a beautiful looking master. Um, but, the, you know, the, the coverage may just feel like, oh, throw it on handheld and we'll just, uh, we'll fish around for this scene, get it done quick, you know. And yeah. You see that a lot in television right now. Yeah. Well, the the the, the thing with, um, with doing uh, – as, especially the horror stuff is you do need to have a lot of uh, a lot of shots so my my goal is uh, i i try to be as fast as i possibly can with the lighting uh, and to design the lighting so that between uh between each setup there's minimal movement of of lighting units and and all that sort of stuff so that uh because my goal is to give the director as many shots per day as he can possibly get yeah i i don't want i, I don't I, I try never to go to the director and say look i need an extra 20 minutes to light this mm. um because that 20 minutes could be one or two setups yeah and sure. um uh and you know one of one of the creep show episodes we got to the end of the day and we were using three cameras admittedly but we did 96 setups wow and um uh and and it was insane the number of shots we got. But at the end of the day, everyone was everyone was cheering and hooting and hollering and high fiving <laughs> each other. It's like, holy mackerel, we made the schedule. We did it in twelve hours. You know? Yeah, man. Yeah, it's crazy when you when you you have to really be on your toes. You really have to have your head wrapped around um, a the language and also be like what that scene needs and what those sequences need. Oh yeah, and and. And, um, you know, and the other, the other qualifier too is, you know, like we have lots of, uh, there's, there's lots of visual effects that need to be taken care of. There were monsters mm -hmm. in monster suits and, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, they've got to be shot in a particular way and you can't see the seams and you can't see the zippers and, you, you know, <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> all sorts of limitations, but that's, that's all part of the fun to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool, man. It's look, it's it's great to hear your passion and and how passionate you still are and how hard you still hustle uh, you know, with like your 40 plus years of experience, you know. And it's it's inspiring to hear how uh pumped and excited about this stuff. Yeah, and I, I I I I love doing it. I mean, you know, I, I I wake up each each morning when I'm shooting, and uh, and I'm excited to get to set. You know, I can hardly wait to get to set because I I absolutely love doing this stuff, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, it's my my uh, chance to be creative and do the things I like, and and um, and get as close as I can to to 
to doing the things that that I'd really like to see up on the screen. But um, yeah, no, I and, and when you when you pull off, uh, you know, pull off uh, a whole series of, of shots that are going to cut together and tell a really good story, and you've done it on budget and on schedule. To me, that's um, uh, that's a that's a win win for everyone. This is a good point to end it, Rob. This has been a, such a great, great conversation, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing so much with us. Hey, no problem. Hey, can I say one more thing? Sure. There's you. You mentioned parameters before, yes. and um, one of the, one of the things that um, uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, "What's the best camera to use?" And uh-huh. and the answer to that is, there is no best camera to use. And as, as a cinematographer, um, you've got to know all the tools that are available at your disposal. Mm-hmm. And as long as you understand all the parameters of each of those tools, you can make any camera work. It doesn't matter. That It really doesn't matter. Because uh, people say to me, well, what if someone said you've got to shoot on a, an iPhone? It's like, well, I'll shoot on an iPhone. I don't care. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference to me. I can I can tell the same story on an iPhone as I can on an Alexa Mini, and um, and they say, well, how how do you do that? And you go, well, you just got to understand the parameters. You know, what are the limitations of the of the camera, and work within those parameters. And as long as you work within the parameters, it doesn't matter what camera you use. Yeah, and and then you just apply your your own personal POV to those parameters. And all of a sudden, you go, "Oh wow, it looks exactly the same as if I'd shot it on a on a red monstro or, or whatever." You know, it's very true, man. Yeah. It's it's very true because it's just a capture device, and it just yeah, it's box. It's a box with a hole in the front. That's all. <laughs> that's all a camera is. It's a it's a little box with a hole in the front, and you stick a lens on it and hope for the best. <laughs> and all it does. Is what I tell people. The camera doesn't know. The camera hasn't read the script. Yeah. <laughs> and the camera doesn't know the story, mm-hmm. and it doesn't know how the story is going to be put together. All the camera knows is that when you push the start button, it starts recording, and when you hit it again, it stops. <laughs> so, and all it's going to do is record whatever you put in front of it. So, if what you put in front of it is good, it's going to be great. If what you put in front of it is bad. It's going to be bad. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultimate advice. It's the advice that I give a lot of young folks too, where it's just like, how much, you know, what camera should I use to shoot this? And I, my first question is always, well, what's your budget? Yeah. And are you are you yeah. blowing your entire budget on the camera package? Because there's nothing worse. I don't care how good of a cinematographer you are. If if the stuff isn't in front of the camera, you can't make it look good. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, so. Yeah, if you've got if you haven't developed a, if, if you haven't got a POV, if you don't know the parameters of your tools, if you uh, haven't developed a visual style for the project, yeah, it doesn't matter what camera you shoot, it's not going to look good. 
<laughs> on top of that, if you don't hire a makeup artist, if you don't have someone that's doing wardrobe, <laughs> yeah. if you don't have someone that is putting the elements in front of the camera for you to light those yeah. elements, it's yeah. going to look like shit. You know? but, so, but, but even more important than all of that is if you haven't got a good script, guess yes. what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. 100%. Uh, all right, Rob. This has been Fucking fantastic, man. Hey, Thank mate, you so much. Been, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed this, mate. <laughs> Me too, <laughs> brother. So there it is. Today's episode. It's a good one. Um, you know, it's just nice. I was just talking to Rob about this when we went off air. It, it's just nice having a conversation with someone that has been doing this for practically your life. My lifetime, you know, has been creating art and putting it on screen for as long as I've been around. Um, and just to know that you're, that I, I, selfishly, it's to know that I'm barking up the right tree, right? It's to, it's to know that I am so hyper-focused on the language of cinema. I'm so hyper-focused on uh, trying to learn that language and trying to understand emotionally what a lens does, what a focal length, what a focal length does, uh, what a specific light choice does, all those things. And, and it's it's nice to know that that those ingredients are what make the good stuff. Those ingredients are the elements that are needed to create those films that li live on in eternity. You know. Um, and also it's nice to understand, you know, what, what are being asked of cinematographers today and what are, is being expected, uh, by younger producers and young, um, you know, ad execs or, or, uh, studio execs. And, uh, even though the rules that are put on us don't seem as ridiculous as the rules that he had to deal with, like, you can only use this lens, you can't use fill light, you have to be in a T4, all that stuff sounds pretty ridiculous, right? Well, I think a lot of the new rules are kind of ridiculous too. They're just a little bit different. You know, you have to shoot it at this level of quality. You've only, <laughs> you've, you've only got a week to make a feature, you know, all that kind of stuff. The, 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 the speed in which we consume content, uh, it makes it really difficult to on the creators to to keep up with and honestly to healthily keep up with and not go out of your mind and not you know do all that and if you guys want to get more into that i've talked about that on prior episodes go back and listen to our betting episode the guy who shot the expanse we talk about how intense it is to shoot for tv and uh streaming services these days and and even um the uh ghostbusters uh dp we also get into that as well recently um, it's a real thing that's going on. Yeah, Eric Steelberg and I talk about that. But I um, hope you guys found this inspiring, right? You know, we're all drifting through, trying to figure it out. And folks write to me all the time, like, you know, how do you shoot great images? Like, how do you how do you find your inspirations? Like, what do you start as a DP? Um, I would really pay attention to what Rob has to say, you know, because if you if you come at it that way, two things will happen. One. You'll start to understand the language that came before us. Two, 
you'll understand the elements that you need to sort of create stuff that you've seen before. And then three, you'll be one of the few that are thinking about it right now and not thinking about like, you know, fucking camera format and lenses and all that other bullshit. So you'll be a step ahead of everybody else. You know? Um, that's what I like to tell myself. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for coming and listening to the show. And uh, thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. I've been posting it on my Instagram account at Mike Petchy. Um, our numbers, the show numbers have been doing fantastic. While I'm talking to you right now, let's take a look at what our numbers are doing today. Oh, shit. I'm recording this on the 22nd. So this is uh, an early recording. The show probably won't come out for a few weeks. But yeah, we're crossing we're, we're crossing high heights today. We're doing well. Last 12 months, we're about to have the best month that we've had of the show yet, which is pretty insane. Pretty insane. Yep. Yep. We're crossing into double digits for that. That's pretty awesome. So it's all because of you guys. Thank you, everybody that comes on board. And a big shout out to everybody that goes back and listens to the early episodes. You want to get in on that now. I'm contemplating once we cross over 200, I'm contemplating going back and making the early episodes behind a paywall. So if you want to get your stuff, if you want to listen to the entire run of the show, do it now. Do it before we cross 200. Um, lots of exciting stuff on the horizon. Um, working on uh, some new graphics for the show. Working on uh, uh, may even be doing some merch. Are you guys interested in merch? Let me know. Write to me at Mike Petchy and, and, and let me know. Are you guys interested in t-shirts? you guys interested in pins? What do you guys like? Uh, I'd like to uh, get some stuff in your hands, you know? Um, that's it, man. I don't want to drag this out. I got more episodes to record this week. Uh, so you know the deal. I will see you next Tuesday. And thanks for listening. I love you guys.